The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. In December of 1923, one of the most dedicated Satanists and occultists in Germany lay dying. His name was Dietrich Eckhart, and he was the head of the secret Thule Society, known to inner circle members as the Satanic Brotherhood of Death Society. Eckhart had studied black magic and Eastern mystic uh, techniques, and he felt that it, w- it was his calling from Satan to prepare an antichrist who would rule the world. And as he lay there dying, he revealed plainly to those that were standing around him that his 34-year-old apprentice, Adolf Hitler, was that man. And Eckert said this, follow Hitler. He will dance, but it is I who have called the tune. I have initiated him into the secret doctrine, opened his centers of vision, and given him the means to communicate with the powers. Do not mourn for me, for I shall have influenced history more than any other German, end quote. That's eerie, isn't it? But I think that Hitler had been prepared long before he met Eckhart for that. When he was 15 years old, his testimony comes from a childhood friend of his, 15-year-old youth, he was with a friend, August Kubizek, and suddenly he grabbed Kubizek's hands with incredible force. And a look came over his face that Kubizek had never seen before. His eyes turned feverish, and he began to speak in a voice that was loud and hoarse and raucous. Kubizek felt that some strange being, being had seized control of his friend, Adolf, and was inhabiting his body. And he began to speak, Hitler began to speak eloquently about a mandate to rule Germany and lead her back to her rightful glory. From that point until Eckhart's pronouncement, Hitler immersed himself in, in occultic studies, all kinds of black magic practices. And the political party that he would eventually lead, the National Socialists, the Nazis, was to become more than merely a political party or a government. It was to become a religion. Now, the Greek word antichrist doesn't literally mean against Christ, although that is the effect, but it means in the place of Christ, taking his place. Hitler would offer himself as a messiah to the German nation. And his soaring oratory, his frenzied speech-making was the key to his demonic power. It would seize him and drive him to volcanic heights. It was really scary to listen to him speak, eyewitnesses said. Hitler said privately to his closest followers, I'm going to become a religious figure. Soon I will be the great chief of the Tartars. Already Arabs and Moroccans are mingling my name with their prayers. The whole nation was sucked under his demonic spell. Hitler did become a god for millions. At one of the Nuremberg rallies, a giant photo of Hitler was captioned with the words down below, In the beginning was the word. One of his followers, Alfred Rosenberg, said, Let it all happen as it will and as it must, but I believe in Adolf Hitler. Above his head hovers a star. Hitler's hold over people and over the German nation, I think, was supernatural and it was demonic. It is not easy to prove the central thesis of my message here. 
And that is that the kings of Babylon, one generation after the other, have been effectively influenced by Satan to accomplish his ends. How do you prove that from the pages of history? There's all kinds of skepticism about that. But just the effect that this man had over people, I think, the spellbinding effect. William L. Shire, who was a CBS correspondent, went to those Nuremberg rallies, and he said that the, that the people looked on him as if he were their Messiah. People would swoon under his influence. It was hypnotic. I think it was demonic. Historian George Bruce concluded that Hitler had mediumistic powers that linked him with satanic forces which spoke through him and gave him specialized information. Now, I believe, however great was the influence of this man and however dark and evil his deeds in history, they're a mere dress rehearsal to the final act in this great drama when the future Antichrist will come who will rule the world. It will be the culmination of every tyrannical throne there has ever been on earth. The final form of Babylon the Great that has ruled the world in various forms and in every era for thousands of years. And behind each of those tyrannical thrones has been the power of Satan himself. But as we mentioned last week, and this is the glory of this passage, above those evil thrones, above Satan and his throne, is the king of all kings, the omnipotent throne of Almighty God, because Isaiah 14 speaks of the casting down of the king of Babylon, the throwing down of this powerful force. This is what it says. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. And so this is the theme, I believe, of Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, the past and present and future defeat of the king of Babylon, of Satan himself, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 13 the fall of Babylon, and we saw that it referred not just to the destruction of that one city, the city of Babylon, by the Medes. It did refer to that, but also to the wicked form of government, the tyranny that is, is woven into Babylon itself, and into the wicked human governments that will rise up from the ashes of one tyranny until its time comes to be destroyed and the next tyranny rises. Just Babylon and Babylon and Babylon to the end. That was Isaiah 13. Last week, we looked at the human king of all of these Babylons, the kings of Babylon, really, the rulers who are going to take up these thrones. And we focused on the human side. We looked at the whole, the whole chapter, the whole section, Isaiah 14, 1 through 23, and we saw that it referred to human tyrants who used their thrones to crush and oppose the people of God. But this week, we're going to zero in on verses 12 through 15, and we're going to look at the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms, at work in those who are disobedient, at work specifically in the kings of Babylon, to do the will of Satan. And we're going to talk about the fall of Satan. The key verse, look at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. The King James Version famously gives this translation. Of verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nation? So we have that famous title, Lucifer, there. Because the language of these verses seems excessive to refer merely to the ambitions of a human king, I take a double meaning here. Isaiah 14 then does speak of the human king of Babylon and how he is cast down. But it also speaks of the invisible force of evil behind the throne, which is also cast down by Almighty God. Satan, I believe, is the original rebel whose pride and ambition is spoken of here in Isaiah 14. And it introduced evil into a pristine, a holy universe. 
He sought to better his standing in heaven, his heavenly position, to raise his throne above that of all the others, even to challenge God himself to receive worship as God. He was cast down to the earth. He decided to try to subvert God's plan for the earth by recruiting man, the king of the earth, to join him in his rebellion. He was successful in that recruitment. He recruited the human race to join him in rebellion. And that's been the story of history since that time. Now, I believe it is no coincidence that the clearest indications in the Old Testament, the clearest descriptions of the fall of Satan, of what led him to fall into rebellion, are both given in prophetic passages that talk about human kings. I find that fascinating. Isaiah 14 talks about the king of Babylon. And if you put your finger here in Isaiah 14, go over to Ezekiel 28. We're going to look at it uh, later. But I've just learned as a preacher, give people time to find the text. So we'll come to it later on. But it's Ezekiel 28. And there we have the king of Tyre. Now, Tyre was an influential trading city in northern Palestine, which used its widespread influence as a port city and a center of commerce to spread corruption and luxury and pleasure throughout the world. So here you have, in Isaiah 14, you have the king of Babylon, and Babylon represents military power and conquest and tyranny, crushing power. That's Babylon. Then in, in Ezekiel 28, you have the king of Tyre, and that represents commerce and trade and money and pleasure and luxury. And those two together make up the world as the enemy of God. Military crushing power, the king of Babylon, luxury and trade and, and all of the stuff, the commerce of the world, that's the king of Tyre. And I find it fascinating that Satan is hiding behind both of these men. You can't find him in the text. And actually, there are many Christian commentators, conservative Christian commentators, who believe in the inspiration authority of the Bible, will not touch this theme that I'm preaching on today. They, won't preach, they wouldn't preach this sermon. They say Satan isn't in Isaiah 14. He's not in Ezekiel 28. Calvin was among, among them. He hated that kind of speculation. But I don't find it speculative. I actually think it makes perfect sense. Isn't this what Satan does? Doesn't he hide behind things? Isn't he the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Isn't it hard to see always what he's doing do you find the word Satan in Genesis 3, where Eve was tempted and then Adam to join the rebellion against God? Do you find the word Satan there, or devil? No, you don't. You find a talking snake. A talking snake. Is Satan there? Oh, he's there. It's not until Revelation 12 that you find that he's called the ancient serpent who led the whole world astray. So I think he's hiding behind Isaiah 14. He's hiding behind Ezekiel 28, but he is there. And therefore, I do believe that God is speaking of his fall, the fall of the king of Babylon. So, Satan, if he wants to rule the world, must do it through human beings. He must influence human authority figures, rulers, government figures. He must influence them in order to achieve his ends. And I believe this is the story of the world, the story of Satan, his influence, and of his fall. May I say more joyously, his many falls. For the Lord did not ordain just one fall for Satan. But he has ordained many, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. So let's start with the, Satan's past defeat, as we see it in the words of Isaiah 14. Don't forget to keep your finger there in Ezekiel 28. We'll come back to it. But Isaiah 14 speaks of a fall from heaven. Isaiah 14 and verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Uh, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Now, this passage speaks of glory and beauty like that of a morning star. Uh, the Hebrew here is Helal ben Shachar. 
uh, literally a shining one, son of the dawn. The indications show that it refers to Venus, uh, seen to be a star by those that stand on the earth. It's a planet. But it never reaches its zenith before the sun rises and the glory of the sun eclipses or, or covers that of Venus. And so it's a competing star that doesn't seem to win against the glory of the sun. It's the brightest of all the stars, but nothing compared with the glory of the sun. And so the Greek translation of this Hebrew expression was Heosophorus, which also means Venus. Now, when Jerome, uh, in the 5th century, translated this into Latin for the Western Church, he chose the Latin name for the, for the planet Venus, and that was Lucifer, or Light Bearer. Thus, Isaiah 14 speaks of a glorious, beautiful being like a star. The angels were created before the world began. God created them, spiritual beings, and they observed, they watched God create the universe. And they celebrated what God was doing. They enjoyed it. And they were worshiping God for the glories of his creation. You get this in God's speech to Job. In Job 38, verses 4 through 7, you remember how God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind and sets him straight. Some of the most fascinating therapy you'll ever find in counseling is what, how God set Job straight. By basically giving him a tongue lashing for a couple of chapters until he's the happiest he's ever been in his life. Still in the middle of his misery. But God has spoken to him of his own greatness. And he is satisfied. And he gets the stuff back. He gets things back. But that just doesn't matter. He has God. And that's enough for him. But God speaks this way right at the beginning. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions, surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So the angels are watching God as he lays the foundations of the earth and they're celebrating. They're worshiping God for what he's done. And he calls them their morning stars, plural. Now Isaiah 14 speaks of the morning star that's fallen. I believe he was an angel then. A fallen angel. Isaiah 14 also speaks of power and influence. You see the word throne there. Look at it. Verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. So he's, he's got a position of authority, of power. He's got a throne. We're going to find out it just wasn't enough for him. He wasn't content with what God had assigned to him. Now, no more details are given in Isaiah of that. But I think Ezekiel 28 gives us more uh, background information. So again, keep your finger in Isaiah 14, because that's our, our focal point today. But go over to Ezekiel 28 and look at, look at verses 12 through 15. It says, You are the model of perfection. Speaking of the king of Tyre here again. You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, turquoise, and beryl, your settings and mountain, mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the mount, the holy mount of God, and you walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. The phrases here are quite striking. Model of perfection. Literally, the Hebrew gives us sealed in perfect proportions. Full of wisdom. That's speaking of intellectual, of mental ability, moral judgment. Perfect in beauty. It uses kind of language that we would understand in terms of precious stones, but just absolutely radiant in beauty. 
a created being, and this is very important, says three times there in Ezekiel, in verse 13, on the day you were created. Uh, Verse 14, and so I ordained you. Verse 15, from the day you were created. Very much emphasized that uh, this cherub, this angel, was a created being. Now, since Satan is a created being, created by God, God then is infinitely more powerful than he is. We do not believe in dualism, in a dualistic universe in which God and Satan battle it out, good and evil, you know, light versus dark, yin versus yang, or whatever you want to do with that whole dualism thing, on roughly equal terms. That is absolutely untrue. We've said before, I can say it again, all power that Satan has is borrowed from God. It's God's power. He can take it back anytime he chooses. He can unplug Satan anytime he chooses. You're all thinking today would be good. Be good today. But let's let God be wise because God has ordained many falls for Satan. He's got this worked out. His ways are better than ours. So we'll let God do it in his own time. But we just need to understand they're not equal. Not at all. Satan's a created being. Look at the location then in Ezekiel also. He was in Eden, the garden of God. That places him there as God is crafting that beautiful garden where he would put Adam and Eve making a perfect place for man to live. The angels are watching God make it, celebrating its creation. Uh, It also speaks of the holy mountain of God walking among the fiery stones. He seemed to have access to God himself and walking amongst other glorious beings. And he was given a position of authority. He was anointed, it says, a guardian cherub, standing watch to protect. And it speaks of his purity, his holiness. He was blameless in his ways from the day he was created. So that's what Ezekiel 28 tells us of this being before the fall. So, by summary, Satan is a creative being, gloriously beautiful, powerful, established in a position of great authority, with access to God himself on the holy mountain, blameless in holiness, walking in the truth. Jesus says in John 8, 44, he did not abide or remain in the truth. So he started in the truth, turns away from it. Now we come to the great unsolvable mystery of the universe. It's the unsolvable mystery of theology. I do not have an answer to this question. What is the origin of evil? I have no answer. All I have are these verses. How could evil crop up in a perfectly good universe? I do not know. All I know is Ezekiel 28:15 says, You are blameless in your ways... From the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. That's it. It just comes up. Where, how, I cannot understand. I just know it's happened. And it has covered the universe like a poxy plague ever since. It is a wicked, evil thing. It's spreading. It continues to grow. And the Lord in his grace through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is dealing with it. It's the only force that can deal with it. And that's the grace of God through Christ. But there it is. It just crops up in the heart of Satan. Ezekiel describes more of Satan's early thoughts in verse 17 of Ezekiel 28. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and made a spectacle of you before kings. He was apparently corrupted by pride. He was impressed with his own beauty, impressed with his own power. He liked himself in a bad way. (laughs) I mean, it's fine to, to be appreciative of what God has put in you. Give God the glory. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's fine. But don't take it too far. 
He was corrupted uh, by pride in his own beauty. Now, go back to Isaiah 14, and we'll just spend the rest of our time there. We're done with Ezekiel. But Isaiah takes up the account from there with Satan's pride, his five I wills that you heard read. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So when he says, I will ascend to heaven, it's an upward mobility and ambition stemming from pride. Satan had been set perfectly where God wanted him. He was in the right place, but it wasn't enough for Satan. He wanted more. He wanted to be higher than all the other angels. He wanted to rule over them. He wanted to sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly. Basically, he wanted to take God's place and be worshipped as God. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be God. And so he was thrown down. He was defeated. Now, the full account of this, the fullest biblical account of this defeat, in my opinion, is in Revelation 12. Don't take the time to turn there. But in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9, it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and his dragon, the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So it seems that, uh, again, reading from the book of Revelation, that Satan was able successfully to recruit about a third of the angels up there because it says that the tail of the dragon swept a third of the stars and flung them to the earth. We don't know how many angels there were. Daniel mentions a hundred million. So that's a lot of angels. We have no idea how many he flung to the earth. But we believe these are fallen angels, what we call demons, spiritual beings that are part of his kingdom. They joined in his rebellion and uh, he was thrown to the earth. Isaiah 14, verse 15 says, But you are brought down to the grave, to the depth of the pit. Ezekiel 28, 16 and 17 again says, Through your widespread trade you are filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made you a spectacle before kings. And Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But with it comes a warning to the earth. Heaven's happy, but watch out, earth. This is what it says, Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He was filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. So God clearly ordained that Satan's upward mobility, his pride, his self-love, his self-worship, his soaring ambition would be judged. Satan was cast down from his heavenly position. But God has ordained not just one fall for Satan, but that Satan would keep falling and keep falling and keep falling forever in different ways. And he would ultimately end up suffering eternally in a hell designed for him and for the angels who joined him in rebellion. For Jesus says in the passage on the sheep and the goats, speaking to those who joined Satan in his rebellion, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the ultimate end and the ultimate fall of Satan. So when Satan was cast down to the earth, he began the present phase of his fall, the modern earthly phase of his fall, by recruiting the king and queen of the earth, Adam and Eve, to join him in his rebellion. Now, that recruitment is written about in Genesis 3. This is what it says. 
The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We, are, uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the very thing that led Satan astray, that ambition to be like God, to take God's place? Just like the king of Babylon passage, just like the king of Tyre passage, Satan isn't mentioned here at all. He's hiding behind the snake, making it talk. But it's Satan. And he is luring the human race into rebellion on the very same theme. You will be like God. You get to take God's place. Remember the five wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly in the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He wanted to be like God. Now he sells it to the human race. And this corrupting influence through Adam has ruled in the hearts of all people ever since. But especially, I think, especially clearly, in the hearts of those ambitious empire builders, those kings of Babylon that sit on human thrones and extend their tyranny over the surface of the earth and expect to be worshipped or you die. They are very Satan-like. They're very demon-like in this, the kings of Babylon. Well, God begins his defeat of uh, Satan, his earthly defeat of Satan, by severing the alliance between Satan and the human race, the direct alliance between them. He severs them right there in what's called the, the first gospel uh, promise, Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'm going to divide up that arrangement. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is a clear prophecy of the coming of Christ, the seed of the woman, and that there would be a lineage of believing people, the elect, who would not suffer Satan's torment, who would not be thrown to hell, but actually would be redeemed by the seed of woman, by Christ. And so God predicts the coming dragon slayer, Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of Satan, of course. Satan then begins his active, invisible, spiritual influence over human beings as history unfolds from there. He is the power behind every evil throne. Listen to what's said about him in the New Testament. Remember when he's tempting uh, Jesus in the desert and uh, he brings him to a high place, a mountain, and in Luke 4, uh, verse 5 through 7, it says, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant. Well, what did he show him? All the kingdoms of the world. He's an expert on the kingdoms. He knows which ones are powerful, which ones not so powerful. All of these different regimes. He shows them all to Christ. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Boy, he hasn't changed, has he? I've said before, this is the most arrogant statement ever made by a created being saying directly to the Son of God, get down and worship me and I'll give you the earth. Well, it's a debate who gave it to Satan. I think Adam gave it to him. And I think the sons of Adam continue to give it to him by giving him influence. And so he has this influence over the kingdoms of the earth. 
How then does he rule? Well, he rules silently, quietly, behind the scenes. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, just ponder that phrase. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. He is the ruler of an invisible spiritual kingdom having influence over the disobedient. So what does that mean? Well, I believe every single political leader on the face of the earth is either indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God or under the influence of Satan to accomplish Satan's purposes. I do not say they're all demon-possessed. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he's running the show. I'm just saying he's influencing. I'm saying he's whispering in ears. I'm saying he's orchestrating. He is playing chess. And he is doing what he will do. I'm talking about presidents, prime ministers, dictators, kings, emperors, members of Congress, lower-level officials. If they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, they are part of the problem. Part of what Satan is doing in the world. He is the wicked king of kings. And that includes whatever nation is most powerful on the face of the earth at that given time. Whatever nation it is. Now, the king of Babylon, Isaiah 14, was an actual man at one point, had a name, Nebuchadnezzar, or Evil Merodach, or Belshazzar. Then it would be Cyrus the Great, or Darius the Mede. Or it would be Alexander the Great, the Macedonian, whoever it is that's running it. But if he's not filled with the Holy Spirit of God, uh, he's under the influence of Satan. Now, in Revelation 18, it seems that Babylon represents all of these human kingdoms of the world that stand in opposition to God. Therefore, the true final king of Babylon will be the Antichrist, and he will be in close collusion with Satan. Now, Daniel gives us a glimpse into this whole invisible spiritual world. Daniel was the prime minister of the greatest empire on the face of the earth, Persia at the time, the Medo-Persian Empire. He was the prime minister there. Uh, He was a godly man seeking the face of God every day in prayer. Uh, Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God and asking God, praying toward Jerusalem that God would restore Jerusalem and restore the temple. He was praying in that way. So God dispatches a glorious angel to answer him and tell him what's going to happen. And this glorious angel, when he finally arrives, is so incredible and powerful and glorious that the men that are with Daniel faint almost dead away from fear. They're in terror, Daniel himself in terror. This is a powerful being. I preached on this in Daniel 10. I said, he is no sissy angel now, okay? He's no weak angel. He's a powerful angel, glorious and mighty. He's a warrior. But he tells us this in Daniel 10, 13. The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days so I couldn't get past. For 21 days, this powerful warrior angel couldn't get to Daniel because the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted him. Then Michael, one of the chief princes... I believe an archangel, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. This is not just hinting, this is more or less directly saying that there is this being called the prince of Persia. Now, Persia is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. This prince of Persia resisted this angelic being and and the angel couldn't get past. Now, I'm telling you, no flesh and blood could have stopped that angel. And I don't know that that the prince of Persia was Satan. It would be even more terrifying if it wasn't. 
if he was just one of Satan's lieutenants, you see. We don't know. I just know he's a spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. And it took two mighty angels to get the one past. The archangel Michael came down. Now, at the end of the encounter, he says, I want you to know where I'm going. This is what I'm about to do. Daniel 10.20, he said, Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Well, that's the next world-conquering empire. The prince of Greece is going to come with his satanic being as well. It's just the rise and fall of the empires. It's the rise and fall of the world. And behind the scenes, there's these pulsating satanic forces. And there's a fight, a warfare going on in the spiritual realm all the time. I find it fascinating that God just allows those angels to battle it out on more or less equal terms. Whenever he wants to influence, he can win. But he lets this first angel and Michael fight it out until the message can get through after 21 days. Fascinating. And so Paul, the apostle in Ephesians 6, uses governmental language to refer to Satan's organized kingdom. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, that's going on all the time around us. Rulers, authorities, powers. It is happening. And in this way, Satan destroys the earth. Isaiah 14, 12 says, You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. So he lays low the nations by influencing rulers to do the wicked things that they do. And so God sent his son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to destroy the work of Satan. He sent his son into the world, the one who had been predicted back from Genesis 3.15. And Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Satan fell because of his upward ambition. He wanted to go up, up, up. And all of the demons fell for the same reason. Their upward ambition. They wanted to go up, up, up. Also, human beings joined in that. They wanted to be like God, the upward mobility. So, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appears to destroy the devil's work. How does he do it? Philippians 2. Speaking of Christ who being in very nature God, did not think it robbery, didn't try to steal something that wasn't his. Who's that sound like? Satan. Did not think it robbery to be considered equal with God, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is the downward descent of humility in Christ. It led to our salvation. As the hymn put it, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's what Jesus did. Christ, in dying on the cross, he destroyed Satan and his kingdom, and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We the helpless ones. We the powerless ones. We the evil ones, the wicked ones who joined in Satan's rebellion. He has freed us up by his blood, by his shed blood on the cross. You may still be in bondage. You may still be in Satan's kingdom as you came here today. It says at one time we were living under the influence of Satan. The gospel has the power to rescue you. As though God himself were making his appeal through me right now. Be reconciled to God. Come to faith in Christ. The blood of Christ shed is enough to destroy all the works of the devil. And so flee to Christ, repent of your sins and of your rebellion, throw down your weapons of rebellion, throw down your lusts and your selfish ambitions and your anger and all that, throw it down and come to Christ and he will forgive you of all of your sins. For Christ has been plundering Satan's kingdom for 2,000 years. I told you, it wasn't just one defeat he wanted, he wanted 2,000 years 
of the defeat. And so he sends out 72 disciples and they have power to drive out demons and they come back celebrating, oh Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And remember what he said, I already quoted it, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But don't rejoice that the demons are subject in your name. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Oh, what a joy that is. Jesus has been plundering Satan's kingdom. But there's a future defeat left to come. The Antichrist is coming. The final king of Babylon will come. And he's introduced in Revelation 13 with the dragon, Satan, standing in front of the shore. And there's this pulsating wave of of turmoil. I think it represents the nations. And up out of the nations comes this beast. This dreadful beast, Revelation 13.1. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. With ten crowns on his horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. And the ultimate aim of both the dragon and the beast is to be worshipped. They want to be worshipped. And so it says in Revelation 13.4. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast. And they asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? I find this a bit humorous. I don't know why. There's just something funny about the fact that even then the dragon has to get his worship through the human being first. So they're going to worship Antichrist and then they're going to ultimately worship the the power behind the throne. But he yearns for your worship. He yearns for the worship of human beings and of other angels. And so the final act of human history is this human being, this final king of Babylon, this Antichrist, endued, infused with the supernatural, wonder-working power of the devil. He'll be able to do miracles. And he's going to captivate all the non-elect people on the face of the earth. And they will receive his mark and they will fall down and worship this human being. And they will worship the satanic power behind him. And if they don't, they're going to be executed. They're going to be killed. That is the crushing power of Babylon to the final degree. And the final blasphemy, 2 Thessalonians 2.4... Speaking of the Antichrist, he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And so he's going to receive worship at the end. Christ is going to return and destroy them both. He's going to, he's going to come back and destroy them both. No more king of Babylon, either human or satanic, be gone forever. And so it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, The lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Revelation 19 pictures this one riding on a horse, the king of kings and lord of lords, and he fights that final battle of Armageddon. He destroys the army that's arrayed against him, and the beast is captured, and he's thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Revelation 19.20. Satan is chained up for a thousand years. At the end, he leads one final rebellion. And then he is also thrown into the lake of fire, along with the grave and death itself. And the victory is complete. He's thrown into the eternal fire that was prepared for him and for his angels from that original fall. And then comes the final celebration. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to spend eternity celebrating this victory. For eternity, we are going to give thanks to God who liberated us from a force too great for us and we're never going to have to deal with them again. Never again will we feel the influence of Satan's temptations. Never again will we be pulled away from Christ by them. Never again will we have to suffer under the lash of worldly tyrants who are operating under his influence. Never again. 
And then at last, we'll bow down and worship the true King of Kings in freedom forever. Now, what application can we take from this? Well, I've already given you the central one. Flee to Christ. If you're still in rebellion against God, there is forgiveness. Today could be for you the day of salvation, freedom forever from that tyranny that Satan has set up. Flee to him. Trust in him. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, come and talk to me after the service. Or you can go. There's going to be people in the, in the parlor that can talk to you about your, your personal walk with Christ. Don't leave this place without trusting in him. But secondly, understand Satan's influence over world governments and history and politics. Understand it. I'm not saying we can always see what he's doing. Just say he's there. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. As I was driving to church this week, I saw a decal on someone's rear windshield. And it had an artistic rendition of a candidate for president. And below it, the single word, hope. I thought, oh, no. No. How can we put our hope in some politician? How can we put our hope in government and government programs and all of that? How can we put our hope in man who fails in every generation? Don't put your hope in a man. Don't, you put, don't put your hope in a political party or a political process. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in God. Ah, it troubled me, as you can tell. <laughs> Also understand this, and I mentioned this last week, but this is where it, the rubber hits the road with me. You know what led Satan to fall? Discontent with what God had given him. Just wasn't satisfied with the boundary lines. God has put boundary lines around each of you and around me too. And inside those boundary lines are some rich blessings. And outside those boundary lines is stuff that isn't ours. <laughs> belongs to somebody else. And so you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet a position that isn't given yours. Be happy and content with what God has given you. Be content with it. It says in Psalm 16, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Can you say that, brothers and sisters? Are you satisfied with what God has given you in this world? Are you satisfied with what he's promised to give you in the next? Is it enough for you? If so, then you're free to serve others. And therefore, thirdly, let your ambitions be holy ambitions. It's good to be ambitious. There's nothing wrong with ambition. But let me tell you what to be ambitious for. How about this? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Be ambitious to be as righteous and holy as Jesus. Or, or this one. Romans 15, 20, Paul says, It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not named, so I wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. I'm ambitious to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Be ambitious for that. Or here's a simple daily ambition. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. I, wanna, I have my ambition to be perfectly pleasing to Jesus the rest of today in all of my works. Those are good ambitions. Have those. And finally, anticipate the day when you'll be free from this beast, from this tyranny forever. Celebrate it ahead of time. This is a taunt song. It's meant to celebrate our fallen foe. We will not lament him. We will not miss him. We'll be glad when he's gone. Look forward to the day. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life. 
the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.